Well, good morning. All right, so we are in our second Sunday of Advent, continuing in our sermon series, Journey to Bethlehem. And in our sermon series, we are following along the prophetic journey to Bethlehem. Looking at all the ways, not all the ways, but looking at many of the ways that the Jewish prophets spoke of this coming Messiah, who ultimately is Jesus, born the King. And last week we looked at the very first prophetic word that was given in Scripture from Genesis 3.15, revealing that Jesus, this coming one, would come as an avenger to right the wrongs done by the adversary against humanity, to undo the damage that had been done. This week, we see that the coming avenger, this coming one, will not only come as an avenger, but he will come also as a king. Our text today, which has been read for us, like last week, is drawn from Genesis. Last week's text was from the beginning of Genesis. Now we have arrived at the end of Genesis. Jacob, who is one of the great patriarchs of the Jewish faith, calls together his 12 sons on his deathbed, and he speaks a word of prophecy and blessing over his 12 sons. If you were listening closely, as no doubt you all were listening closely, you will have noticed that two of the sons in particular received the most attention from Jacob, Judah and Joseph. And if you were listening especially closely, you will have heard that Judah uniquely is given dominion over his brothers. And not only over his brothers, but from Judah will arise a great king who will wield the royal scepter, not only ruling over his brothers, but ruling over the people's which is another way of saying in the ancient world, ruling over the nations. Genesis 49, 28, after Jacob has concluded his blessings and his prophecies, says this. Let me take us back to it. 49, 28. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. A question that I want to guide our time this morning is this question. Why is it that Judah was considered suitable for the blessing of kingship? What was it about Judah that made him suitable for this blessing? I'm going to do something different this morning. Normally, when I'm preaching, I will uh, exegete a passage of Scripture, draw out some points and make some application, and perhaps use some sermon illustrations along the way. Today, it's going to be one big sermon illustration. We're going to look... Did someone just clap? I think someone just clapped. <laughs> if you're the kind of person that doesn't pay attention except to the sermon illustrations, this will be your Sunday morning. <laughs> We're going to look at the story of Judah and Joseph. And we're going to see how these two brothers and their stories are intertwined with each other and how they're intertwined with the coming of Jesus as king nearly 2,000 years later. So I'm going to tell you the story of these two brothers. It's going to take a bit 
to tell the whole story. We'll work our way back at the end to this prophecy that is given over Judah and Joseph. So settle into your seats, snuggle up to the person next to you, or not, don't do that. But let me tell you the tale of these two brothers, both destined by God to rule, but only one, Judah, destined to be the father of the greatest king who ever lived. All right, our story begins with Jacob. He's the father of Judah and Joseph. And when he was a young man, he is far from home. He had, if you know the story of Jacob, you know that he has cheated his older brother Esau, who was a very manly man, and he flees for his life to his uncle Laban, far away from home. And when Jacob gets to Laban's lands, he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel. He asks Laban for Rachel's hand in marriage. Laban agrees to the term of seven years' service as the bride price that is set for Rachel. This may seem like a high bride price, but Jacob is in love with Rachel, and it seems like a small price to pay, and he works for seven years to win Rachel's hand. Finally, the night has come, the wedding feast, the celebration, but on their wedding night, under the cover of darkness, Laban switches out Rachel for Leah, Rachel's older and less desirable sister. Jacob does not discover the switch until morning, which incidentally is probably a good reminder to grooms everywhere to go easy on the wine on your wedding night. So in any case, Jacob wakes up the next morning and discovers Leah, and he's not happy about this. But Laban says, oh, don't worry about it. I will give you Rachel too for another seven years of service. So Rachel is given to him with the pledge of another seven years of service. And now Jacob has two wives, one that he loves a lot and one that he does not love at all. And therein lies a crucial element of our plot. This, of course, is not family dynamics set up for success. The two sisters become very bitter rivals, and they engage ultimately in a sort of procreative arms race, <laughs> a contest to see who can produce the most sons. Leah, of course, is envious of Rachel because she knows that she's the unloved wife. And she thinks that by producing children, by producing sons in particular, she'd be able to gain Jacob's affection. Rachel is having a hard time conceiving. Leah's already up four sons, did nothing. And Rachel is envious of Leah because of Leah's capacity to conceive. Things get very intense when each sister gives Jacob their respective servant as a surrogate wife in order to produce more children on their behalves. So by the time the smoke clears, Jacob has four wives, kids do not try that at home, and 12 sons. Six of the sons are from Leah, two of the sons are from Rachel. The last two sons born to Jacob are from Rachel. Judah is the fourth son of Leah, the unloved wife. Joseph is the firstborn of Rachel the loved wife. And as it will not surprise anyone, the rivalry that is between the two sisters extends and carries over into a rivalry between their sons. The sons of Leah 
and the sons of Rachel do not care for each other. And Jacob simply pours fuel on the fire because he is not discreet in his favoritism of Rachel's sons over and against Leah's sons. Many years pass, 14 years, Jacob has paid off his debt for his two wives, and he decides to return back to his homeland, hoping that his brother's wrath has cooled. And as he's making his way and approaching his father's country, he finds out that Esau, his older brother, is coming with 400 men. So Jacob is understandably alarmed, thinking that Esau is holding grudges. And so Jacob divides his household into different camps, figuring that if one camp is attacked, the other camp will have a chance to escape. But his favoritism becomes clear because he puts the handmaid wives up front, so they'll be attacked first, then Leah's uh, children and Leah up next, and he keeps back with himself Rachel and her two sons, Joseph and Joseph's younger brother, Benjamin. Well, it turns out things go well with Esau. Jacob continues to flourish. He makes for Joseph the famous coat of many colors that uh, we probably all have heard of, unique coat marking out Joseph as the distinguished son, though he is one of the youngest. Joseph and his younger brother, Benjamin, get to stay home with mom and dad while the others go out into the field. So the 10 sons of Leah and the handmaid wives are out working the fields of Jacob. But Benjamin and Joseph, the sons of Rachel, are back in the tent in a life of ease. It's compounded, of course, because Jacob then sends Joseph occasionally out into the fields to look over his, brother, his brother's work and to report back to Jacob. So you can imagine how enthusiastic they are to see Joseph coming across the field in his bright, many-colored coat. Joseph often brings back a poor report of his brother, making the rift stronger. And then, to cap it all, Joseph begins having dreams and in his dreams, he sees that one day his brothers will come and bow down before him. And then, of course, he tells them. Because why to have a dream that good and not to rub it in the faces of your brother? And so he tells his brothers that one day they will come and they bow down before him. And it seems clear to all that the family scepter belongs to Joseph. That he will almost certainly inherit it from his father even though Leah's sons are older and she is the first wife. Well, finally, Judah and his brothers have had about all they're going to take. And one day when Joseph is sent out by Jacob to check up on his brothers, they see him coming across the field and they plot against him. Their intent is to kill him. They grab him, they throw him into a pit where he cannot get out, and they're going to leave him to die. But during this time, they see some Midianite traders on their way to Egypt, some slave traders, and Judah gets the bright idea. We could leave them there to die and have no gain, but if we take them out, we can sell them into slavery and we can make some money. It's a twofer. We get rid of Joseph and we get some cash. So the brothers get on board with this program and under Judah's leadership, they pull him out of the pit and they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Well, the brothers return back to, jo to, to Jacob. They take 
Joseph's coat, they smear it with the blood of an animal, they tear it up and they bring it back to Jacob and they say, Father, we found this coat, perhaps it belongs to your son. And Jacob sees the coat, he is understandably distraught and grieved. And he laments deeply, he is beyond consolation. It becomes clear from reading the text that Judah and his brothers have overplayed their hand. Their father's grief overwhelms them. They are deeply regretful for what they have done. It's much like we looked at in last week's sermon. They've gotten what they've wanted only to discover that it isn't really what they wanted. They regret their actions, but it's too late. Years pass, probably a decade or more goes by, and a famine passes over the whole land. Jacob hears that there is grain in Egypt, and so he gathers together ten sons, his ten sons, and he sends them down into Egypt to buy grain. But you might be saying, but aren't there eleven sons left? Well, there are eleven sons left, but Benjamin will not be sent, not because Benjamin is too young and fragile, but because Jacob doesn't want anything to happen to Benjamin. The 10 sons can go. They're expendable. But Benjamin is the last of Rachel's sons, and he won't let Benjamin go. When Judah and his brothers show up to buy grain, they're brought before the governor of Egypt, the Egyptian official who is second only to Pharaoh himself. And he questions Judah and his brothers where they have come from, what their land is like, their people, He asks them about their father. Is he still alive? He asks them whether they have any other brothers. Yes, we have one younger brother who is still alive. And then after all this questioning, he accuses them of being spies. And he grabs Simeon, one of Leah's sons, and throws him in prison. And he tells the brothers that he will release Simeon if they bring back their youngest brother as proof that they are telling the truth. He gives them their grain that they have purchased and lets them go, but warns them that they will not be able to purchase grain in Egypt again unless they bring their younger brother with them. The whole episode is bewildering to Judah and his brothers. And of course, it gets stranger because when they get back into the land, they open up their grain bags to discover that the money that they had used to buy the grain has been returned to them. What can it all mean? They go to Jacob and immediately ask him to let Benjamin go with them back down into the land of Egypt so that they can release Simeon from prison. But Jacob won't entertain the idea. He would rather let Simeon rot in an Egyptian prison, one of Leah's sons, before he'd risk the last of Rachel's sons. He says no. But the famine persists. And extends on, and eventually they run out of food. They must go back down into the land of Egypt. Jacob insists that they must go, but but let's look, pick up our story in Genesis 43, 1 through 9. You can turn there or you can just listen to me read it. But Genesis 43, 1 through 9. Now the famine was severe in the land when they had eaten the grain that They had brought from Egypt. Their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. 
If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel, which is another name for Jacob, said, why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? And they replied, the man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me, and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. For my hand, from my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. So Judah offers himself as a pledge or surety that Benjamin will be returned. We think of pledge in the way we use it in our culture as a promise. I pledge to do something. But in the ancient times, a pledge would have been like collateral, how we understand collateral. So, so if someone took out a loan, they would perhaps leave some piece of property as collateral so that if they didn't pay back the loan, the person that gave the money would be able to take that instead. Judah is offering himself as collateral to ensure that Benjamin will be brought back safely. Jacob really has no choice. He must relent. They will all die if they don't get food. And so reluctantly, reluctantly, he lets the brothers and Judah take Benjamin down into the land. But they make their way back to the land of Egypt. They get there. And they are told by the governor's steward that they must present themselves to the governor at his house, his personal residence. This is a bit alarming to them. Their first thought is that they are going to be accused of not having paid for their grain the first time. They express this concern to the steward who assures them that everything is fine. And instead, when they get to the governor's house, they find that they have been invited to dinner. Sure enough, there's Simeon already released and seated at the table, and the rest of them are seated according to their birth order. Judah and his brothers feast with the governor and his officials. The scripture tells us that they made merry. And then they go home, and the next day they purchase their grain, and they begin the trip back to their homeland. But they're only a little way out of the city when they're surrounded by chariots and soldiers. It's the governor's steward. He has chased them down, and he accuses them of having stolen a silver cup from the governor's table the one that he uses for divination. Well, they protest their innocence and who would be mad to do such a thing and so forth. And the steward tells them that if the cup is found in the sack of any man, that man shall be a slave to the governor in Egypt. The rest, of course, will be able to go free. So they all unload their donkeys and open their sacks and to their horror, the cup is discovered with Benjamin. You can read in Genesis 44, 13 through 17. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. And when Judah and his brothers came to the governor's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. The governor said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? 
And Judas said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servant. Behold, we are my Lord's servant, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But the governor said, far be it for me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now look at the situation that Judah and his brothers are in. They're presented with nearly the exact same scenario that they have been presented with Jacob, with Joseph rather, out in the fields. They have the same opportunity to get rid now of the last of Rachel's son, to cut him loose as an Egyptian slave, just as they sent the first son of Rachel into the land of Egypt as a slave. And this time, they can do it without deceit. After all, the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Perhaps he took it. And Jacob is still playing favorites. He hasn't changed. He is still treating Judah and his brothers as expendable children, as second-rate sons. Jacob hasn't changed, but Judah has changed. Listen to his response to the governor. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a younger brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servant, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. We went back to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our younger brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And then your servant, my father, he said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to the grave. Now, therefore, as soon as I Come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us. Then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, my father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant. Remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Alas, now we've come to it, the crux of our story. And the answer to the question of why it is that Judah is given the blessing of kingship. 
even over Joseph, the favorite son. Joseph did become a great ruler, and his brothers did bow down before him. If you know the story of Joseph, then you know that the governor is none other than Joseph himself. Sold as a slave, but raised by God all the way to the very throne of Egypt. Joseph became one of the most powerful men in the world of his day. Though his brothers did not recognize him, he recognized them. And in his dealings with them, he was testing them to see if they had changed. Perhaps testing Judah most of all. For it had been Judah who had sold the first son of Rachel into slavery. And Judah passes the test. Judah chooses his father's glory above his own, even at the expense of his own life. He acknowledges to Joseph that Benjamin is the loved son. And he acknowledges that the father's glory, Jacob's glory, is more important to him than even his own happiness. The bitterness that drove Judah's actions when he sold Joseph into slavery has been replaced over the years by repentance and a deep and unflinching will to honor his father, no matter what, even though his father didn't love him. And it was this self-abasing humility that made Judah suitable for the blessing he received from Jacob on his deathbed. Though Joseph became great just as his dreams foretold, Judah's supremacy would outstrip even Joseph's. And you notice in Joseph's blessing, verse 24, yet his bow remained unmoved, his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. It's a reference to Christ, who is the descendant of Judah. Joseph is blessed and helped by Judah. To Judah was given the blessing of kingship and dominion, not only over his brothers, but also the peoples, the nations. What are we to make of Judah's story? What use can we put it to? Sometimes understanding how the stories all fit together in the Bible is its own justification. We don't ask what use can we put a poem to or what use can we put a work of art to. This story is its own beautiful story. There's a tapestry that is woven together in God's providence. It speaks of the realities and the truths of life in powerful ways and perhaps For you this morning, just seeing the connection between Judah's story and Joseph's story and ultimately Jesus' story is its own point. Nothing more is needed. Or perhaps for some of you, your story is much like Judah's story. You are the unloved child of your father. And perhaps also like Judah, that may never change. Jacob's loyalty and devotion remained principally with Joseph and Benjamin throughout the remainder of his life. But note this, 
that Judah's blessing didn't ultimately come from his earthly father. Jacob spoke what would happen, but Jacob couldn't make it happen. Jacob saw into the future what God would do in Judah's life, and he spoke a word of blessing accordingly. Fundamentally, the blessing that Judah receives is from God. However much you are insufficiently loved by your earthly father, in Christ you are loved eternally and deeply by your heavenly father. Judah played the part of the unloved son in deference to his father and in loyalty to what was right, and God saw and honored that and did not let it fall to the ground. As it relates to our series, Journey to Bethlehem and the Advent story, the story of Judah is woven together into the fabric of Jesus' story. From Judah's line will arise the great kings of Israel, David and Solomon, Hezekiah and Josiah, and most especially Jesus, the greatest king of all, whom the Apostle John refers to at the end of the Bible as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Not just Judah the place, but Judah the fourth son of the unloved wife. What a privilege, what an honor. Not only does Judah's story foretell that Jesus will be born a king, but Judah's story helps us understand what kind of king Jesus will be. Judah did not consider equality with his father a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking even the form of an Egyptian slave, he humbled himself even to the point of death. Therefore, he was highly exalted and blessed above his brothers, so that the name of Judah, every one of their knees, should bow, even Joseph's. Does that sound familiar? Should sound familiar if you know the story of Jesus. Judah is not only the forerunner of Jesus, he is a foreshadow of Jesus. Just as Judah humbled himself and made himself nothing, seeking his father's glory above his own, so too Jesus humbled himself and made himself nothing, seeking his father's glory above his own. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Judah foreshadows this great king who would come, who would rise to his power, not just through might, but through humility and subjection and deference above all to his heavenly father. Judah's story teaches us that the pathway to glory is through humility and subjection to God. Perhaps it's a special word for some of you here this morning. Perhaps you find yourself in a situation that's not unlike that of Judas. Perhaps God is calling you in 
to a place of subjection that feels even like slavery. God doesn't call all of us into those places, nor is every relationship a relationship that should take that form. But perhaps there are some point of sacrifice that the Lord has placed upon you, some honor he wants you to pay, some deference he wants you to give, some respect that is due. Perhaps it's related to work, to family, to home, I don't know. But what Judah's story tells us and what Jesus' story tells us is that the pathway to glory is through humility. The pathway to glory is through submission to God. And when we submit ourselves to God and we lay ourselves out before him, God sees it, he recognizes it, and he doesn't leave us there. But he takes that submission and he honors it and he raises us up and he gives us the glory that he gives to Christ. Jesus is the great consummate example of this foreshadowed by Judah. Let us live into the faith that Judah had, that Jesus confirmed, and that we are invited into even now this morning. Father, thank you that you have given us the story of Judah, who is himself the forerunner of Jesus, our great king, who became king not by asserting himself in his own right and crushing all opposition, but who became king through humility and meekness and submission to you. God, thank you that he sits enthroned in the heavens and that he is the means by which we also are exalted. Help us to live into the path that he has marked out for us, the path of humility and faith. Lord, we love you. We thank you for giving us Jesus. We love him. Bless us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.